Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings a message dealing with church government, the overseer qualifications. This is part one of two in a new sermon series entitled Faith Foundations. We begin our journey in the Bible at First Timothy. So stay with us to the end, find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Ever done a home remodeling project? You know how much fun that can be. We always start out with great intentions, and what, you know, often when my wife asks me to do a project, it always sounds simple. You know, hey, can you just throw up some shelves here real quick? And it's never just real quick, you know. Can you just, like, throw me up some pantry shelves? And, and while we're at it, let's knock out this wall, and then let's, let's bring in the bedroom into the, in, into the dining room, and let's put a master bath in. And pretty soon, it's just this, this huge, enormous project. And you, you have the best of intentions. When we have this large project ahead of us, we just want to kind of jump right into it, don't we? And there's a lot of planning ahead of time. You've got to prep the area. You've got to clean. You've got to sketch out something on paper, and you look at it, and you remeasure things. You go down to Lowe's, you buy all the parts and materials or wherever you go, and you come home, you unload it. You start on the project only to realize you're missing the one tool that you need, so you go back over to the store, you pick up what you need, you come back home, and then you realize, I'm really kind of out of time, and then you don't touch the project for three weeks. That's how my projects go, I don't know about you, and that's kind of what it's like when we're talking about the church. We're starting a series today on the church and its governance. Now, I know that sounds exciting to a lot of people here, but it's, it's essential and important. Remember, we're going through a series of series based upon what we talked about this last Sunday in Acts chapter 2. There are several things that the early church did that showed that they were healthy, and God listed them out for us. And the first thing that we saw was that the church had recognized leadership. Now, we have no apostles and prophets today, but we do have elders and deacons. And so we're going to look at the qualifications of elder and deacon. We don't just choose random people off the street. This is obviously not a, a, a beauty contest. You know, you didn't pick the most fit guy. You didn't pick the most handsome guy. You didn't pick the wealthiest guy. It's based upon moral qualifications. You need to have somebody in these positions of elder and deacon who are quality people, who represent God well, who are above and beyond everything, above reproach, okay? Now, the problem is we can't just jump right into that conversation because that list is, is fairly lengthy. And if we just do all of those in one service, we won't be able to give that much time to them. And most of them don't need much time because there's not a lot of debate. What does it mean that a pastor cannot be a striker? I mean, it's pretty obvious. If you have a pastor who solves his problems with his fists, he's known as a street fighter and a brawler, probably don't want him preaching the word. If it says not given to much wine, that's pretty clear. Okay, we don't want a pastor who's a drunk. That's obvious. So we don't debate on those. But there's one particular condition uh, that is the subject of tremendous debate. And so we're going to have to devote an entire message just to understanding what does it mean to be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife, as some translations put it. What does that mean? And I'll tell you right now, just preliminary, before we came here, we noticed that the church is... is got a lot of different viewpoints on this. You know, there's a lot of people on this side, and there's a lot of people on this side. And so we have to handle this subject carefully and lovingly. We have to do that. And we can't just say, you know, uh, my way is the way I've, it's always been, and so it's got to be right, and these over here can't say, well, this is only right, and, and then and all of a sudden we have people who are butting heads. 
Is it possible to disagree as a Christian and still be loving toward each other? I hope so, because we've got to do that. We have to do that as believers. And so we're going to talk about this subject of what it means to be the husband of one wife, but we're going to do it, and I'm going to try to be fair, and I'm going to try to be loving. Now, I obviously hold one position, so I've, I've got to teach what I believe God's Word says. But I also acknowledge that there's good people on both sides of this. Can we do that? The people that disagree with us, they're not bad people. There are loving brothers and sisters. But this is an important topic that we need to talk about. So when we talk about the husband of one wife, in the Greek, it reads literally one woman man. Okay, so there's two basic positions, and then you have some variations of those positions. But really, it comes down to two basic schools of thought. Either the husband and wife or one woman man, it means a marital status. And all we have to do is check your, your marriage records to see whether or not you're qualified. On the other side, there's the, a viewpoint that a one woman man is a moral qualification that we look to see, is this person, uh, are they devoted to their one mate that they have? Or do they have eyes only for that person? That they're not a flirtatious uh, individual who's you know, hitting on the other ladies at church and things like that. So which side is it? I'm gonna tell you there's good points on both sides. Okay, this is not an easy subject. Anytime you're dealing with divorce and remarriage, it's a sticky, nasty subject because God's original intention for man was what? What God has put together, don't let any man separate. That's God's intention. Now, because of sin and difficulty in this world, sometimes divorce happens. And if you're here and you have been through a divorce, friends, my heart goes out to you. You've been through what psychologists say is greater stress than even the loss of a mate in death. I mean, there is pain and difficulty associated with that. But can I just tell you too and encourage you, there is grace on the other side of that, that God's forgiveness extends and we can, we can rebuild and we can enjoy a, a life of service with God and, and enjoy a beautiful family and God can rebuild and recreate because that's what our God does. So we're gonna handle this subject delicately, but we're just going to hit it straight on with the word of God. So as we do this, I just want you to remember one thing here, that your position on what it means to be a husband and one wife, it's not a test of orthodoxy. This, what you believe about this is not up there with, is Jesus God or, and man? It's not up there with the virgin birth. It's not up there with the, you know, the, are the scriptures infallible? It's not up there with salvation by grace through faith alone. But sometimes we try to weigh those doctrines exactly the same. And if you disagree with me on the slightest point, you know, that we're going to have a fight. You know, I know there's a lot of folks in here who like to study prophecy on Sunday mornings. Do you ever have guys disagree? I'm pre-trib, I'm post-trib. Well, about time you get out of this class, brother. You know, we don't do that. There's debatable areas in those scriptures which have good scriptural evidence for them. And so as Christians, we need to have a loving viewpoint to those who disagree. Jude chapter one, verse three says this, that he, he, ta he encourages the brethren. He says, let us contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. To contend means to fight and defend, even separate over if we must. What do Christians fight, contend, and separate over? The faith. What is the faith? The faith are those doctrines directly related to the gospel. The faith, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. If your teaching teaches a false gospel, that's something Christians ought to fight over because your doctrine is sending folks to hell. That's important. You know, is Jesus God man? Is his death substitutionary for us? Is it by grace or is it by works? The Jude says we fight for that. 
We hold fast to that. But he doesn't say hold fast and fight for every doctrinal nuance that you have. Is that fair? That there's certain things that we can have disagreements on. Even Paul and Barnabas, remember, before the second missionary journey, what they have? A sharp and bitter disagreement. So Christians can have these disagreements at times. But we need to be careful we're fighting for the right kinds of things. Uh, this is a time to remind you of Romans 14. Uh, we read it a few weeks ago, but it applies here too. God specifically forbids us from fighting over our opinions in debatable areas. And just as a summary, he says, as for one who is weak in faith, that's someone who's easily offended, it says, welcome him, but not over opinions. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Because he stands before God himself. Then he goes on to say, or why do you despise your brother? Now, he was talking about issues of what they considered doctrinal issues. Do I eat meat offered to idols? Do I celebrate this holiday? Or do I not celebrate this holiday? And he's saying these are debatable issues, friends. There's good people on both sides. He says, but whatever you do, who are you to judge your brother? And, to, and who are you to despise your, one another? See, in Paul's day, when people disagreed, sometimes they actually took it a step too far, and they actually began to dislike people who disagreed with them. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. He's saying, do not despise one another simply because we disagree. To disagree is not to hate, or it shouldn't be that way. So let me just promise you this. Whatever side you land on on this issue, as a pastor, I'm going to love you and treat you exactly the same. Because it's okay. Just make sure that what you stand on, you're not just saying, this is what I believe, but you have good scriptural evidence for why you believe what you believe. And I'm telling you, friends, when you brought me on, I hope that was clear. Everything I ever preach is going to be attached to scripture. And if you have a position that you bring to me, I'm going to ask you chapter and verse. Where, where is that? Where do you get that from God's word? Because if God doesn't say it, we don't have a lot to stand on. So... Today, friends, I hate to say this, but the cookies are going to be on the top shelf today, okay? You need to get you a stepladder because this is going to be a little bit of a, a, a difficult study, so take good notes. And even if you don't take great notes, we'll have some printed notes for you at the very end you can take with you and review it more for yourself. And the reason we do that is because I'm not your authority. I'm really not. I don't want you to believe something just because Pastor Heath says something. You need to believe it because you believe that's what God's word says. And my goal is to equip you as each individual is in the congregation that every one of you knows how to interpret the Bible well so that when there is false teaching, you'll know how to identify it. And by the way, false teaching doesn't just mean somebody disagrees with you. I hate it when people just throw around that term false teacher so quickly. Oh, they're, they're post-trib, false teacher, false teacher. The Bible's very clear. False teachers are those who teach things that are blatantly against the gospel of God. Okay. Or there's somebody who is teaching the Bible, but with wrong motive. They're in it for the women. They're in it for the power. They're in it for the money. Those are false teachers. If somebody disagrees with you, that does not put them in the camp of false teacher. Or guess what? That puts you in the category of false teacher to somebody else. So we can't just throw around that term false teacher just because somebody disagrees. Let's be known as a congregation that love is loving in our, in our conversations. Because it's important that we have these conversations. If Every time somebody fights because somebody disagrees with you doctrinally, what will you stop doing? You're going to stop talking Bible to people. You're going to stop talking about doctrine. At that point, who wins? Satan. If we can't learn as Christians how to have doctrinal conversations, even that oppose each other, and to do so biblically and lovingly, we'll stop having those, and then neither one of us grows. And I think that's just a shame if the church of God can't have 
biblical and doctrinal conversations, even with people that we disagree with. Well, let's look at the two positions. Is one woman man a marital status or is it a moral qualification? So under marital status, uh, I'm going to say this. It means that a one woman man means that they've only been with one woman ever. And now often we just use this as kind of a blanket statement. It means no divorced people can ever serve as a pastor or a deacon. But what I want to caution you is Paul could have used that language for divorce here, but he doesn't. He just says one woman man. Now, if you believe this is referring to a marital status, that would, of course, include any divorced person. So I'll say that. Now, in support of marital status, uh, you have the argument of tradition. There's always, we've always done it that way. And there's a certain sense of weight that comes with that because if we've always done it that way, surely we did it because that was always the best way. But is that always true? Are there things that the church have done historically that were wrong? Of course. Of course there were. Uh, you know, Martin Luther himself was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. Our reformer. So he had some really great things to say about Romans. He had some growing up to do in this other area. Well, even in the church, uh, when I grew up as a little kid, I don't know about here, but when I was a child growing up, divorce was such a stigma. People even had the idea that, you know, they shouldn't, they can come, but they can't do anything. They can't play piano. They can't be in the choir. They can't teach children. They can't do anything. Just sit here and be quiet. And that was sort of the idea. Now, as a church, we've come away from that because we recognize there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And so we came away from that. So sometimes, as as believers, we have to examine our traditions according to Scripture because if we never are willing to examine our traditions according to, to Scripture, how do we know if it's still biblical? We'll never know unless we weigh it. But I will say the argument of tradition does hold some weight because we like to believe that the people before us were probably doing it the right way. And many times they were. Sometimes they're not, but we'll never know unless we're willing to re-examine ourselves. There's an argument from once married, always married. So there's an idea that, among some people, that if you've ever been married and you marry another person, now, even though you humanly have a divorce, you're still continually married to two people at the same time. Have you heard that argument? And so if you believe that once married, you're eternally married, when you marry that second person, you're eternally married to two people, I can understand why, if you believe this, why you'd believe that disqualifies a person because they're essentially a polygamist. But we have to put some weight on that. Does the Bible teach once married, always married? Well, I'd like to ask Jesus that question. Obviously, he's not here, but I can look at John chapter 4. Jesus, you remember he was talking to the woman at the well, one of the most prolific adulterers and divorced people in all the Bible. This woman was divorced and remarried five times and then is just cohabitating with a guy. That's called a bad luck woman right there. She'd been divorced five times. I don't know how she pulled that off. But Jesus is going to witness to her, even amongst the Samaritans who are universally hated in Israel, even the Samaritans hated her. How do we know? Because she was drawing water in the middle of the day at noontime. Is that when you would draw water, carry big buckets of water? You wouldn't do that. She went when nobody else was there because everybody hated this girl. But Jesus talks to her, which had to really stun and shock her. Now, when he talked to her, what did he say? He said, Jesus goes, tells her, he says, go and call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus knew his situation. He wanted to confront her with this. The woman answers him and says, I have no husband. And Jesus told her, you are right in saying I have no husband. 
For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. Now, based upon what Jesus just said here, does Jesus believe that once married, always married? No. How do we know that? A couple of statements here. He says, you are right in saying, I currently, present tense, have no husband. Jesus did not see her as currently being married, despite the fact that she'd been married five times, divorced five times, currently cohabitating with a man, and yet Jesus says, you are right in saying, you don't have a husband. And then he talks about her previous husbands and says, past tense, you have had five husbands. And so Jesus does not see a person as once married, always married. In fact, in heaven, what's it going to be like? It says, we will be like the angels, Jesus says. We will not be married nor given in marriage. That's why in our marriage vows, we say, till death do us part, because after death, God no longer sees a person as married. And frankly, Jesus saw after divorce, the person is also no longer married. What, and there's, a, there's an idea, there's an argument from what people call perpetual adultery, however. There's a sense in which if you marry someone who's divorced, you've been divorced yourself and you get remarried, you're still married to that previous person. And so in marrying this new person, now you're living in perpetual adultery. Now, some people will take that to an extreme position. Because you're living in perpetual adultery, and God says several times in Scripture, adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God, therefore you're going to hell. There will be some people in churches who will take it so far, they'll even tell people, you may as well not even come here because you're going to hell anyway. Don't bother coming to church if you're divorced because you're living in perpetual adultery and you're going to hell. Do I hold that position? No, I don't, and I don't think the Bible holds it either. Frankly, that is a perversion of the gospel because God is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. And we've got to be very careful that we don't become Pharisaic and condemning others and adding things to Scripture. We do not wish to pervert the gospel. But what is this, Matthew 5, 31 to 32? If it says, uh, it, whoever, uh, anyway, he says, who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what is he saying here? Is he saying anyone who is currently married to a divorced woman is in the act of continually committing adultery? Study the grammar. I mean, you could see it from the English here, but in the Greek, it supports the English. No, it does not say that they are in a state of perpetual, continual adultery. What is that act of adultery? That act of adultery is this. If you have someone who is not biblically divorced, which, by the way, there is biblical divorce. If you are not biblically divorced and I go to remarry a person, that act of remarriage is an act of adultery. But once I've committed adultery... That was sin in itself, and we don't take that lightly. But once I've committed that adultery... What do we have here? We have a new marriage, and we've got to be faithful and committed to that. I mean, Jesus himself said, if you divorce for anything other than, than an adultery, well, once you've committed that adultery, you've broken the clause that Jesus talked about here. Now, I'm not trying to make divorce easy for anybody, friends. Divorce is never easy. If you're contemplating on that, please come and see me. I will meet with you personally, privately. won't charge you a dime. I want to help your marriage stay together because that's God's intention, and that is God's best, and you will suffer from any kind of divorce. Even a legitimate biblical divorce will cause you pain and hurt, and I want to help save you from that. But Jesus even says here, 
that there are biblically permitted divorces. In what case, Jesus? Well, in this case in particular here, he says, except for on the grounds of immorality, that there was adultery within that marriage. There is a permissible divorce. Now, mind you, it's not demanded. It's only permissible. And if it's a one-time offense, I encourage people, stay together, you know, forgive and learn to overcome that together because there is a love and forgiveness on the other side of that. Jesus says, he who is forgiven much will also do what? Love much. I've seen marriages come back together after adultery and become even closer on the other side, and they take it seriously, and they realize how important that vow becomes to them. So there is, on the grounds of adultery, divorce is permissible. Remarriage is permissible on the grounds of adultery. There's really only one other condition. I mean, other than death, I think we all agree that in death, you're free to remarry. But even then, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to the unmarried, everybody who's in that category of unmarried, divorced, uh, single, he says, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Okay? You're free to remarry, but marry another believer. And that's important leading up to this next thing. So the only two qualifications or the only two conditions in which God allows biblical divorce is one, adultery. Number two is a very unique situation. You have two unbelievers, and the, one of those unbelievers gets saved. And the unbelieving mate says, I don't want to live with this believer. I'm tired of all this junk, and I don't like you going to church and doing all these things, and you're always away from me. I want to be separated. And the unbeliever departs the believer. That's the only other condition that God allows marriage and divorce. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15, to the rest I say, not I but the Lord, but if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Pause. He's saying if you're a believer, or if you're a believer who just got saved and you're married to an unbeliever, don't leave them. You're not free to do that. Just say, well, I want to find a believing husband. You can't do that. He says, they might be made holy through your example. But what does he say later on? He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, okay? If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, that brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What does that word enslaved mean? If you are two unbelievers, you get saved. The unbeliever departs from you. You are no longer enslaved. This is the same term enslaved used of a doulos, a bondservant. It's a willing covenant that someone makes with another person as their master, choosing them to be a lifelong master to them. It's a willing covenant out of love, and it's a lifetime covenant. In that same way, Paul uses this term with, with someone where your unbelieving partner de uh, departs from you. He says you are no longer enslaved. Literally, you're no longer under a marital covenant, just as they, you know, just as that was a lifelong covenant of love, you are no longer under covenant. God has called you to peace. So these are the only two conditions outside of, again, if you look at death, uh, these are the only two conditions that God gives for a biblically permissible but not required divorce. And so God has a very, very high view of divorce, and he has to because he's talking to the Pharisees here. The Pharisees believed you could get divorced for any reason. I mean, you burn the pot roast, you embarrass me in public, you gain you know, 15 pounds, done. All they had to say is three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you're done. And you could just cast her, this woman into the street, and there was a lot of abuse surrounding that. And so Jesus is saying, no, God has a very high standard 
of marriage. The only thing we got to be careful as a church is understanding that God has a high view of marriage. We don't want to make sure that we have an even higher view of marriage than God has placed on us. We don't want to be Pharisees who add laws and add burdens and add weights onto people that God did not do. So we've got to be very careful not to become too liberal and say, well, you know, boys will be boys, do whatever you want. And we don't want to be on this other side of the Pharisees saying, well, let's, if, if God is this strict, then let's be even this more strict. Because now we've either taken to or added, or to, added to or taken from the scriptures. Now, I'm just going to add this in here. What if a Christian couple simply divorces because they don't want to be with each other anymore? The Bible actually addresses that situation in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. It simply says, you should, you should stay, to, stay apart and just stay divorced. Do not remarry or else be reconciled to each other. The Bible's very, very clear. Two believers who just say, we're done with each other. We don't want to be with each other anymore. We don't have biblical grounds. They weren't an unbeliever, and they didn't commit adultery, so we just don't want to be with each other. The Bible says you, you can stay separated, but you're not free to marry anybody else. You're free only to reconcile with each other. Now, what if that situation happens? You have two, un, or two believers who separated, and during that time, one of them commits adultery. Now that's a different situation. But the Bible's very, very clear in these areas of divorce and remarriage. Well, let's look briefly at the argument of language. Again, I reminded, I reminded you earlier that Paul here, when talking about being a one-woman man, he could have used specific terms to talk about a divorced person, but he doesn't. So he's not simply talking about divorce and remarriage. He's talking about a one-woman man, which has a lot of broader implications here. And so there's an argument of consistency. If one-woman man means a moral, or not a moral, but a marital status, then there's much broader implications to that belief than simply divorced people can't be a deacon or can't be a pastor. It, mean, it would have to mean a man who is married to one woman and only one woman ever. That's what that means. So who else would that have to necessarily disqualify? Singles. Why do you, why do you say that? Because they're not married to anybody. They're not the husband of one wife. The text doesn't say divorce. The text says husband, one wife, or one woman, man. And so singles could not, be, or could not serve uh, as a pastor here. Furthermore, you couldn't serve in ministry. And I know this is a little bit, this is bantered around a little bit here, but myself and Paul Washer and many others agree that these moral qualifications are for anybody tied to spiritual oversight. He says, if the man desire the office of an overseer, he desires a good thing. An overseer of ministry is anybody who's in spiritual ministry overseeing that ministry. And frankly, all ministry is connected to the church. If it's not, it's not a biblically operated ministry. All ministry is to be tied to the church. I don't care if that's mission boards. I don't care if that's parachurch organizations. They need to be sent out under the authority of a church. And so all those who represent God in the Bible, all those who represent God in evangelism and missions and church planning, they need to follow these qualifications. It's not just the pastor that needs to be above reproach. It's anybody who's representing God and representing God's word. And so you, you single people could not be in ministry, but there's a problem with that because Jesus was single, obviously. Uh, John the Baptist was single. Paul himself, who wrote this, was a single man. And so we got to be very careful here that if we make this a moral status, Paul himself was not qualified for the ministry that he was in because he's not a one-woman man. He is not in status married to any women. But it would also have to exclude widowers. Because if you have a pastor, maybe he's served here for many years, 
and God forbid he loses his wife, what must we now do? We must dismiss him from the pastorate because there's no way he can be a one-woman man again by status because now he's currently not married, he's single. And if he does get married again, now he's the, he's the husband of having been two wives. And so now you're forever done with the ministry. Is anybody here prepared to take that kind of a stand on this being a uh, marital status? That he is no longer qualified for ministry ever because his wife died. That's not a position that I'm willing to take. I don't believe that's what the Bible is teaching here. In fact, if it was, Unity Baptist Church would have been in sin in May of 2009. You see, Pastor, uh, pastor Floyd lost his dear wife here, and yet he continued on as a pastor. But now he's no longer, by marital status, a one-woman man. He's just a man. And so we've got to be very careful when we make this a status. We've got to be consistent in what we teach. It would also exclude biblically divorced people, that God says you can biblically divorce and remarry, but the church will not recognize that. And so it, there's a lot bigger implications of holding this to be a marital status as opposed to a moral qualification. Now, obviously, by now you realize, I believe this is talking about a moral qualification. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, one argument is from corroboration. I think this is the weakest argument, but I'm going to start with that. Corroboration, simply meaning that I believe this is what God's Word says, but I'm going to compare that to people who are Ph.D. biblical linguists, Ph.D. in Greek, Ph.D. in Hebrew, in their entire life they've been studying this. Let me just compare my notes with these guys here. So who else believes in the, the, that this is a moral qualification, not a status? First of all, let me just tell you that our entire church staff of all of our elders, okay, myself, Theron, Brad, we're in agreement on this. This is a moral qualification. But in addition to that, you have people who are far more learned than any of us three. You know, and depending on what these names mean to you, you've got names like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, William Hendrickson of the Navigators, if you've ever used Navigator material, uh, Charles Stanley, Wayne Grudem of Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, Southern Baptist Professor A.T. Robertson, J. Vernon McGee. Anybody ever listened to J. Vernon McGee years ago on the radio? Uh, missed that guy. Anyway, uh, he's also of this position. Charles Swindoll. Charles Ryrie, if you've ever had a Ryrie study Bible, old-time uh, professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. David Platten. You know, and I could go on with this, but I don't need to list a giant pedigree. All I'm simply saying is, clearly, to hold this other position is not a heretical position. You have a lot of good people on this side and the other. Okay, so we can't make this a test of orthodoxy. We have the argument, too, of cross-reference. We're talking about a one-woman man here, right? What if in the Bible we came to a situation where there was an official position in the church uh, for a woman, but she had to be a one-man woman? Well, fortunately for us, that does exist. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, just two chapters later, same author, same book, Paul talks about what we call the role of widows. Now, we don't often talk about the role of widows in the church because most churches, we don't have those anymore. But back then, a widow was much weak, in a much weaker position than what they are today. Today, usually it means she's you know, living on Social Security and the retirement and that big package, uh, that giant life insurance that the husband left her, and she goes for vacations in Tahiti. You know, that's, that's where widows are today. But widows back then did not have that. And so for a widow, they could not hold a job. They could not own land. And so they were in a position of weakness. And a widow's only recourse was move back in with family. Here's a problem. What about the widows who had no family? That happened quite a bit. What about widows who had no family? What could they do? They, had, they would have to be beggars. 
And so the church came up with an idea. We're going to create staff positions for the godly widows, okay? We'll, we'll help the other ones figure things out, but for some of these, we're going to create a staff position for them. But they have to fit certain qualifications. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll see what those qualifications are. In verse 9, he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. In other words, if she's still very young, uh, let her remarry. So if she's not less than 60 years of age, and it says, having been the wife of one husband, anybody want to guess what the Greek says there? It's a one-man woman. This widow was to be a one-man woman. If this means, in the same Greek construction, but just for a woman, if this means a marital status, who do we have to exclude from the role of widows? We have to exclude anybody who has been widowed or widowed more than once. It's impossible to be on that role of widows. And so here, it's clearly talking about the widow simply when she was married, she had to be, have been a one-man woman. Everybody looked at her and said, you know what? She was faithful and committed to that man that she was with. Bo, if she's married more, if she got, had more than one husband die on her, she's out though. You'd have to exclude Elizabeth Elliot. Would anybody want to exclude Elizabeth Elliot? I mean, we'd love to have people like that on staff. But she's had three husbands. So we've got to be very, very careful that if you're going to say this is a, more, a marital status, we've got to apply it consistently. It didn't mean a marital status for widows in 1 Timothy 5.9, which leads me to believe that in the same construction for the man, it's also talking about his moral qualification, that he is a one-woman man. His eyes are only for one woman. He's not, you know, entrenched in pornography. He's not committing adultery. He's obviously not a polygamist. doesn't have several wives. And so we're talking about his moral qualification. So there's also an argument from context, okay? We look at this, this list of pastoral qualifications. They're all moral qualifications. To make this one not a moral qualification would be inconsistent with the rest of the list. By the way, myself and along with a lot of other commentators and theologians agree that the entire list of qualifications are all actually descriptions of the same moral qualification above reproach. And that's where he begins. Pastor and or deacon, qualifications for a pastor and deacon are essentially the same. The big difference being the pastor has to be apt to teach. Why? Because the pastor elder overseer role is a role that is gifted in the areas of the speaking gifts. You're speaking, you're leading, you're strategizing. Then we have another position in the church where we set them apart. They also have to be above reproach, but they don't have speaking gifts, so we don't put that on them. They don't have to be apt to teach but they do have to be above reproach, and that is a deacon. Why the deacon? Because they serve. Diakonos means a servant. <clears throat> so you have the pastor who leads and teaches and whatnot, and you have the deacons over here who help offload some of the busy work that those who are the elders have, and we'll study more about that later. But all of those qualifications for the pastor and the deacon, they're moral qualifications, current moral qualifications. If we make this a status, it's inconsistent contextually with the rest of the list. They're simply all de definitions of what it means to be above reproach. Um, what, can we learn anything from the grammar of this? What is the grammar of a husband of one wife? I know this is fascinating, right? You guys are looking at your watch thinking, when does, when does the roadhouse open? Um, Look briefly at the grammar of this, because this is important, because this is a topic of conversation. The grammar is, of a husband and one wife, it is a present tense, active infinitive. Wasn't that fascinating? I told you it'd be worth it. 
present tense is obvious what that means. It means currently, presently, this is a present condition at the time of consideration. It's present tense. Active, you know, the speaker is active in this, but infinitive. It's when a verb becomes a noun, it's a condition. To run is better than to walk. That verb is now a noun. It's a condition of running or walking. And so by grammar, this is a present tense active condition that this person is a currently a moral, upright person. Well, what if they weren't moral in high school? I don't know. Let's look at their life. How have they lived since then? Is that thing still so fresh in everyone's mind that this would disqualify this individual? We have to consider this. I think there's also an argument of consistency. If we're going to say that one of these present tense moral qualifications also looks to the distant past, we need to be consistent and do that with the rest of the qualifications. We need to look back and say, Oh, he's not a striker? Have you ever been in a fight? I mean, even back in your 20s, when you were 18, had you ever been in a fight? Well, then you can never be a pastor or deacon. If we're going to be consistent with this, and we're going to say a present tense active condition also looks to the distant past, we're going to have to say not given to much wine, which means if you've ever been drunk, remember when you were 18 and you made a really stupid blunder and you went out on that bender and you just and you drunk yourself you know, to the dirt? Well, now, 30 years from now, you know, as a 50-year-old man, you still can't be considered as a pastor or deacon. We've got to be consistent in how we apply and how we interpret Scripture. Now, you'll have to ask the question then, I'm not making a case that every divorce is fine and okay. I'm really not. Divorce is ugly. It's difficult. It causes pain, long-lasting pain and difficulty for people. Are there divorces that do disqualify people? Yes, but I don't believe it's because of this category necessarily. I believe it's because he did not rule his own household well. Well, how far back do we go with that? I don't know. How far back do we go with you on that one? Did not rule a household well would also include childhood rebellion. Look at Titus 1, having his children in submission and under control. How far back do you guys want to go with that? How long is it since you had teens in the house? Any of you ever have a teen bow up on you or, or get rebellious with you? I mean, we all have. She's sitting right here. I'm kidding. Mackenzie is really good. <laughs> no, she's a sweetheart, and you know that. Uh, but, you know, there's times where our kids can bow up on us and, be, and go through stages of anger, angst, and rebellion. Do we want to hold that against them 30 years from now? Do we want to hold some mistake they made in their childhood, in their early 20s or, 20s or whatever, and then 20, 30 years from now, we're still going to hold them to that? I'm glad they did, we didn't do that for Paul. Remember, Paul used to be a murderer. He murdered the Christians. He jailed the Christians. Jesus specifically said, why do you persecute me? Paul persecuted God. And some of the early Christians were also reticent to give him spiritual authority in the church because they were upset with him. Why should we put this guy in? Don't you remember what he used to do? You have Ananias saying, yeah, that's past tense. Let's look at who he is now. And God used him to write better than half of our New Testament. And so, no, there are divorces that disqualify. I'd say if your divorce is recent, don't even be looking at spiritual leadership. Friend, your home isn't a mess. I would say if you have a person who has a track record of multiple divorces, somebody who's just, they've, they've flagrantly disregarded over a period of time, I'd say that person is not going to be fitting these qualifications. What we're looking for overall, remember this overarching goal, is we're trying to find somebody who is above reproach. Doesn't mean that no one can ever point a finger. Remember, they pointed a finger at Paul. Why are you taking this guy? What it is, is, is that we have good moral reasons to put them in the position they're in. That was a long time ago, and look at how they've lived since then. They're a trophy of God's grace and his mercy and how God restores individuals. 
That's what we want to look at. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't go too far and we don't go too little. So what I'm going to ask you here is this. You may fully disagree with everything I just said today. And you know what? I still love you. It's okay. It's perfectly fine. Just make sure that what you believe, you're not just tapping the bylaws. You're not tapping some human document. You're not pointing back to just one pastor or two that you knew that you loved, honored, and respected because, friends, I'm not your authority. And no human document is your authority on this. It's only the Word of God. And we've got to hold to that and make sure that we're having scriptural discussions. So in our discussions, friends, I was going to say, if you disagree, don't be disagreeable. Let's learn as Christians how to disagree, but with love and with a spirit of grace and kindness toward one another. I'm also going to say this. This may be my position, and you knew it was my position. I mean, I probably explained it four times before you guys finally voted me in. Um, so, I mean, it's not a shock to anybody that I hold to this position, but here's, what, here's my promise to you. I'm not forcing... Everybody hearing this yet? I'm not forcing the church into any position. But what is my responsibility? I've got to teach you what I think the Word of God says, and I've got to challenge you to think. Put, anytime you hear an opposing viewpoint, we should put weight on our own beliefs and re-examine ourselves. Okay, all right, let's back up. Here's some points. Why do I believe what I believe? Is it based on Scripture? If so, then I move forward resolutely. If not, I at least have some grace for one another. Or I may even reevaluate my position altogether. That's what we do when we come into disagreement. We don't just lean into it and we start a fight. We lovingly listen to one another. It's been said here, well, maybe we ought to err on the side of conservatism. Is, is, so as to say, well, if God is here, then let's go a little bit further just to be sure. Then you'll have people on the other side. You say conservatism. What about let's err on the side of grace? So is, yeah, I know God's here, but hey, we've all been bad. Both sides, I think, put us in an unenviable position. Why? Because when we, are too, we have too much grace, we're not upholding a standard that God gave us, and that's a bad place to be. If we're more strict than Jesus was, then now we're a Pharisee, and we, we're adding man-made laws unto what God said. We don't want to be there either. Where do we want to be? We want to be Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, you shall not add to the word I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you. We want to make sure we rightly divide the word of truth. You say, yeah, that's easy to say. Here's where we are. We have good people on both sides, and this is a debatable issue. Then here's what we say. It's a debatable issue. I still love you, brother. It's a debatable issue. I still love you, sister. It's a debatable issue. Let Romans 14 says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. We don't separate. We don't go, fine, I'm leaving this church. We, we don't leave churches over this issue. That's absurd. The people that would want to leave a church over something like this, you know, they can sit in a dead church for 45 years, never see a soul saved, and never be concerned that the church wasn't going out and reaching people and dragging them from the pits of hell. But when we start talking about divorce, now I'm going to get upset and consider looking around. Friends, let's get offended at the right things. Let's be upset about the things that, that upset the heart of God. I close with this here. As a church, we're never going to agree on everything, are we? We're not. But I want to throw this quote up here. Unity is not a church agreeing in all situations. Unity is agreeing in all situations to love. Can we agree to that right there? Unity, I mean, your unity and your family, your teens don't agree with everything you do. 
Unity is not a church agreeing in all situations, but agreeing in all situations to what? Love. Can we do that? Let's do that today. And as we go forward and we have some conversations, let's make sure they're conversations, by the way. We're not just griping. We're not just sowing discord. We're not just, I just can't believe them. You know, let's have conversations. Let's be loving. Unity, I'm going to keep saying it. Unity is not a church agreeing in all situations, but agreeing in all situations to love. Friends, I have that for you. I pray that you'll return that same courtesy to me. Can we? Let's close in prayer. Father, we're just grateful today that we can study your word. Even these difficult subjects, these red beans and rice kind of things, we know they're good for us to know and study, but they can be a a bit difficult and heady to work through. And God, this is a very personal and passionate subject for a lot of people. But God, even in this very church, we have really good people on both sides of the issue. Lord, in that this is not a test of orthodoxy, in, this, in that uh, this is a debatable area, I pray that because we have good people on both sides, God, both of those sides of good people will choose to be good toward each other. That they'll be good and loving toward each other, not forcing their opinions on other people either. But having just good spiritual conversations based upon Scripture and conversations that are born out of love. God, help us to hear with listening ears to one another, to genuinely listen to what other people have to say, and to always weigh what we believe with Scripture, and not just to hold resolutely to what I've always believed, but always to be willing to reevaluate. God, is there a more scriptural view than what I've always believed? God, send us forth from this place encouraged and strengthened. God, that we may know what we know, why we know it, and that is based firmly on your word, and that, God, that's your intended meaning for us. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes, and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about unity, You can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.